Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, you may have noticed that the very first episodes of Risk from 2009-2010 are no longer available for free on iTunes or on our website. But finally, they are back. You can find the first episodes of Risk in the album section of the iTunes store, remastered with all advertising removed for 99 cents each. You can find them there along with our all-star episodes. Get to the album section of iTunes and you can hear classic stories from people like Michael Ian Black. I'm not a pussy. And just as I'm having those thoughts, I throw up all over my <laughs> Christian Finnegan. This uh, word of the wise, do not eat Mexican food when you're planning on having group sex. That's a good, put that in your book. Andy Borowitz. And I saw that the guy was O.J. Simpson. Now, when we think of O.J. Simpson, we all think of the same thing, right? Author. <laughs> Elna Baker. So the next day, we traveled to a small village in Africa, and I'm escorted into the hut of an 113-year-old sex expert. And I'm like, I'm gonna ask her everything about sex, you know, from the taint to the balls. I'm, you know, I'm not holding back, you know. I'm just, what's a dirty Sanchez? You know, I don't know these things, but I want to. Mike Daisy. But I can't apologize because freedom of speech, freedom of freedom of speech! Ah! And all the shit just started pouring out of my mouth. Janine Garofalo. And Will Arnett claimed he could hear John Hodgman through the walls doing a thing called a pump and dump. I'm so sorry to say, to say I have not heard of it. And I said, what is that? And Will Arnett, picture Will Arnett saying, oh, it's when you defecate and masturbate at the same time. And he said it to embarrass to his core John Hodgman. That idea of John Hodgman doing that, with Will Arnett pretending he could hear him doing that, made me laugh so hard that I herniated two discs. Sarah Silverman. And I was like, my heart stopped, and I go, were you just eating pussy? And he goes, like, as if I was a... The way he thought about it, it was like a magician that guessed his card. He was like, yes! Paul F. Tompkins. I did not win the crowd back to my side with my witty rejoinder, sir, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear you were trying to hurt my feelings. <laughs> Who talks like that? Andy Dick. So it's like, yeah, fasting's wonderful. I mean, look at me. We're ready. So am I. Boom. Crap my pants. And so many more. The first 10 episodes of Risk are back with no advertisements. If you love Risk, you do not want to miss out on these classic episodes. Get to the album section of the iTunes store and look for Risk today. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Jonathan Gear behind me now. What's such an exciting time for us? A lot of us on staff have either just been on vacation or are going on vacation. I just returned to kink camp for the third time. This time, I returned as a faculty member. I taught a class called Everything You Can Do to an Ass Other Than Fuck It. It went terrific. But the most exciting thing of all was that I would say maybe 10, maybe 12 people came up to me at camp this year and said, Hey, we're here because we heard that risk episode called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. We decided to take a risk. We found darkodyssey.com online and we decided to come to camp and they were so excited to be there. So what a thrill to be uh, such a perverse influence, I guess. And I now know how I react when I'm tied up and tortured with a electric cattle prod. I scream and cry like a six-year-old girl. That's the kind of stuff you learn about yourself when you step outside the old comfort zone. Speaking of pain, we're calling today's episode Hurt. Three very moving stories from recent Risk live shows in New York and Los Angeles. People who, you know, lived through an ordeal, but came through and then came to this safe space to share about it. In just a bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful New York-based storyteller, Robin Gelfenbein. But before that, we're going to start things off with my good friend and a brilliant actor, Mr. Ptolemy Slocum. He's been on The Wire, The Sopranos, and so much more. Here he is at the Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles with a story we call When We Were Friends. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Northern California. Really, it's like Central California, like where the farms are. And um, it's kind of a small town, like suburb of nothing. It felt like we were on like a um, uh, little like life raft with no city, just like farms as oceans around us, like nothing to do. They actually um, did studies of bacteria and how it like grows over distances and then mapped it over lands like this. And along the freeways, like human colonies grow up like bacteria in the center of the state. <laughs> It's like an idyllic place, although there's nothing to do, and uh, we live on a small neighborhood block, uh, but we can walk to our um, elementary school, which is nice. Um, but next door to us were Koreans, uh, and good for them, because they decided to move to America. And this, like, it kind of made me nervous that they moved to this like tiny, like, nothing town in the middle of nowhere, but I was... I was happy about it. It was very different. Plus, they had a, a boy child my age next door to me, which means you have a best friend. And he doesn't speak English, which means he needs a lot of help. Um, so I kind of felt like I had my like big Ken doll type of thing that would like run around with me. Um, but Koreans are very different than us. They told me as a child that they were from they were like good Koreans, and there were also bad Koreans. I understand that is now like North and South Korea, but to me at the time, they were good Koreans. Like that's what they were trying to communicate, which unfortunately went into my mind is like at any moment these people could turn bad. <laughs> like 
Because it's like walking into a family and be like, hey, we're not vampires. And it's like, why? Why are you telling me that? <laughs> um, I was young, though. But um, I'm going to... Their son was named Alan, which is not true, but I cannot use his name due to the nature of this story. So we'll just say it's a very Americanized name. We'll just go with Alan. Really was Philip, but I want you to take that off of there. Um... <laughs> Uh, okay, so, but, like, in their backyard, like, their grandparents lived with them for the most part. Like, uh, maybe there was, like, like a few months that they weren't there, but for the most part they were there. And when they were there, there would be these, like, jars of glass. Come back here. <laughs> There'd be, like, jars of glass filled with, like, gelatinous, like, organic materials, like cucumbers, and then all this, like, red paste, and then, and then um, cabbage, which is, like, kimchi. They would, like, pickle their own kimchi in the back in these huge jars, and the jars would be stacked on top of each other and they would line both sides so when you're walking in their backyard it's like you're in an alien spaceship and these are like specimens of like dead like bodies they're like it's like wow this is bizarre and we can't like play in their backyard because there's so much food that's just like pickling in the sun um that is strange uh, and it did smell by the way this is not just like a visual thing it did smell and also, like, inside their house, they had a room that was blocked off from children. Um, and I mean literally a velvet uh, rope, not like the round kind, but there was a velvet thing. And inside that was, like, the nice furniture. And it was kind of like that room was underwater somewhere. Like, you walked past it, and you weren't allowed inside of it as if there's, a, there's like, a museum that they live inside of. Like, you can access these parts, but as children, you don't have access to this. And also their stereo was in there, so we had to like request a parent go in and like put something on, and they then we would compete to see who was um, Michael Jackson and who was Paul McCartney for that. <laughs> that girl is my song because no we we didn't know who Paul McCartney was, so both of us wanted to be Michael Jackson. So I was like, all right, fine. But then we had to have somebody put it back on the song again so that the other person could be Michael Jackson. Um. But yeah, it was fun to have Philip. We would uh, play Star Wars, obviously, um, next door at my house because uh, we couldn't play at their house. And uh, the physical memory I have of playing Star Wars is just running with a fake gun and making the foot sounds. It was like, I don't know why. For us, the trend, like playing Star Wars was having hard-soled shoes on a hard-soled surface. So when we're on grass, we can't duplicate the feeling of Star Wars. So we had, it's just two little boys running across grass going, chick, 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 And for me, he had to make the sound correctly or it wasn't working. So I feel real bad about the way I trained him to be an American, but... It's a lot worse. Um, and we were playing with my Star Wars figures, and my Star Wars figures were like homeless Star Wars figures. They were like naked, and they were unarmed, uh, and they were like dirty. Like we would play with them in like the trees, and they would just be like rubbed everywhere. I remember my mom came outside once and was like, Philip, why don't you guys play with your Star Wars figures? And his line was, because mine would get dirty. And it's true, back at his house, he had like the Darth Vader mask full of Star Wars figures and they all had clothes on them and Yoda had a fucking snake and they had like guns. I, like, I guess I had gotten so used to living without that I like blocked out that they came with anything. I just opened it and lost everything and then just like played with it. Um, 
but they were very protective about their things. And they did want him to play with me, which I respect, because I guess they wanted him to, you know, be more American. I feel terrible about the rest of this story. Um, <laughs> so we built a fort in the backyard. I remember that. It was also Goonies time, so we built this tunnel leading up to the fort, and it was mostly, like, um, blankets and boxes, and we built a table, and that was, our, like, our living room, and then we built this long tunnel with booby traps so that people couldn't get to the tunnel. Obviously, they could have walked through and like stepped on us because it was just sheets, but in our mind, we were protected by this booby-trapped tunnel, which was really just a, a string attached to a, a cup that said pull on it, so you'd have to crawl through the tunnel and, and pull as an attacker. You'd have to pull on it, and the water would fall on you. <laughs> it was not a great booby trap, but we felt safe. And uh, we slept there overnight, and in the morning, we woke up when the sun came up because it was bright. And we started playing house to some extent. And house involves a, a man that is out and like does work by walking back and forth with the <laughs> clicking sounds. <laughs> this is not supposed to be the funny part. Um, kids are sad. And then, the, and then he crawls up the tunnel and avoids the booby traps. There were also toothpicks that they're supposed to stab you, but they were just literally laying on the ground. Um, <laughs> terrible booby traps and then don't pull when you walk past the pole thing and then goes home to his girlfriend and the other dude would have to be the girlfriend and this is not nobody wanted to be the girlfriend but we had to trade off so what would happen is the the man would come home and then just lay on top of the girlfriend and just like start making out like the girlfriend had to like wait at home for him to go to work and then when he came home just like lay still and he would get on top of you and just like mm, mm. that's how we understood life as like adults um and I do remember like when I was the man, like I was the man, I came home and then he would just like, he didn't like it. Neither of us, none of us wanted to do this. Um, and I, I specifically remember his face would just like crinkle up like a gerbil and he'd be like, because he would have to fake kiss me. So like this and I'd be like, and we did stay about this far. It was like, mm, oh, oh. And, the dude's, like, his version of the dude was also, like, kind of commanding. Um, I, I equate that to, like, a Korean thing. Like, I'm the man, I'm the man. Um, and then his version of the girl was like, mm. And this is why I decided not to say his name during this story. Because um, I guarantee you he either forgot this or never told anyone and never admitted to it. Um, and we did go on to our separate ways, but uh, this fucking happened. And don't you forget it, <laughs> Philip. Um, <laughs> but I did think of it to myself, like, this is not something that he would have gotten in Korea. So I'm glad that they moved next door because now there's an awkward, like, faux homosexual experience that he's gotten in the backyard. Um, no one ever talked about it again, but I was over at his house, um, like, a couple months later. And we were playing at his house. It was just his grandparents who were really cute. They spoke zero English, like zero. Um, couldn't communicate or talk in English. So when you approach like the old like grandpa, his only way to interact was to make puppets out of whatever was nearby. So you'd ask like, where's the bathroom? He's like, oh, oh, some pens. And he would like make a puppet show because he didn't know what you said, but he was trying to be cute. Um, they were really cute. They weren't like terrible, like old grumpy Koreans. Um, 
So I was over at his house. I was so happy to be playing at his house. I guess I was just and, and we get to play with like the real shit, like Star Wars figures. And he had like the the speeder from Hoth and everything. Uh, like, and I didn't have shit. Like, I just broke everything. But um, so I shit my pants there. Um, and I just want to specify that I was before we go on. Just the idea of shitting your pants is that like I get so into playing. And I'm so interested in continuing playing that I do, literally do not want to go to the bathroom. In fact, I do not go to the bathroom until like the first nugget like comes like, okay. Okay, look, I just pooped a little bit in my pants. It's time for me to go to the bathroom. Like clearly I can't put it off longer. And I just, I, I consider it just a passion for play. I don't... I don't see it as an issue, but the first, if you just imagine the first nugget like hits the pan, and then I went to the bathroom first. It's not like I fully shit in my pants, right? Oh, this is the hard part of the story. Um, so I go in their bathroom, and I'm like, God, I have to stop playing for a second. So I go in their bathroom, and I don't want to even be in there, but I like finish pooping, and I don't want to go home, even though I have like underwear with poop in it. So I'm like, I don't want to leave. I never get to play over here. So I stash this underwear behind, don't groan about it, um, behind the toilet or like next to the toilet. I just remember like this little like side bathroom and doing the math later right now, I would have chosen to go back and retrieve it. Because what happens is like, they're not going to not find it. In my mind, they're like, oh, I, I'm doing the right thing. I can still play because I have pants on. Nobody knows I don't have underwear on. And no one will remember that I put this behind the toilet. But the thing is that the poop smells eventually, which I understand now. I get it. Like, they found it, okay? Um, and the reason I know they found it is because Philip never played with me again. Um... And I just imagine that cute old man like finding it, you know, like, like what smells in this hallway? And like trying to like locate it and like, oh, our neighbor's shit in the bathroom. And I went to like, I went from, I think, you know, I was already questionable, I'm sure, because I was dirty and whatever. But I went from becoming this like tutor of their child to like a psychopath that lives next door that is like dangerous, like America is dangerous, and like this is like an evil, like he's an evil child. And when I say that Philip didn't play with me again, I mean like, like never again. Like never again, he wasn't supposed to talk to me anymore, uh, and uh, they moved him from that elementary school to another elementary school, and there were only two. They moved him from Vinewood, which was right down the block, to Christian Assembly, which they, I don't even, yes, they were Christian. Um, but it was like oh, another part of the, the town, but they wanted him away from, you know, they, these are controlling people, and they don't want like a shitting child like influencing their son. And uh, so we were not friends again. And I remember him at one point, because I was like, hey, we're still talking. Like I would run into him like randomly. He's like, hey, it's me. You remember your friend? And be like, I'm not supposed to play with you. I remember that sentence. Literally happened. Um, we were visiting the home again. The, the family kind of cut us off, uh, which makes sense. My mother thought that I had taught him so much that he had no longer wanted a part of me. Like, that's how she rationalized. Like, 
why stop talking to us all of a sudden? And then today I was like, no, mom, I shit in their house. Um, it's like, oh, 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 <laughs> that would also do it. Um, but uh, years later, we were visiting the house. I was in like just out of college. Or I, I, my aunt still lived there, so we did Christmases. And, and Sue, don't say Sue either. Um, the mother came out. Um, and it was kind of this like kind of moment where the two of them were like in in the street, and I was like walking around these bushes that we used to play Star Wars in, and the bushes were just like gangly large, like you couldn't even play with them anymore. It was just weird to be home. And those two were talking, and they were both like looking at me and talking. And we got back in the car, and my mom probably didn't know the story then either, but she said uh, Sue said he seems so normal. To my mother, like years later, which is like kind of the most offensive thing you could ever say about someone. Like, I literally thought he would break himself over, like, he's like the fucking craziest person of all time. And I feel bad maybe about some of these people. I mean, Philip, don't say Philip, went on to like be fine. I think he's like a fine, whatever. But the fact is that I think that gave them a pretty good, like, American experience. <laughs> Based on a lot of these stories tonight and a lot of shit that goes on, like, we're all pretty fucking dirty, weird people. And that's, that's what I fucking provided for them. So you're welcome. I got quite scared. And then I shit my pants. My pants. My pants. My pants. I shit my pants. Did you get any on you? I don't think so. It kind of smelled really bad. <laughs> So uh, I couldn't wait to get to college. I was so excited because I wanted to study broadcast journalism at the same school. Yeah, BJ Majors. Uh, I wanted to study broadcast journalism at the same school where Bob Costas and Dick Clark went. The Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Uh, not because I wanted to be the next Katie Couric. I wanted to do funny stuff, you know, like I wanted to interview Ricky Schroeder at the mall or uh, do like trapeze or be the wacky weather girl. I dream big. And everything was going great. I had the best roommate, Mindy Cohen, not to be confused with the Mindy Cohen from The Facts of Life, although that would have been awesome. Uh, but this Mindy and I loved all the same things like air popped popcorn, musicals, and Balky from Perfect Strangers. And then all of a sudden, I started to hear like the strangest noise. And it was kind of like this hiss, and it would build. And I heard it every time I came in and out of my dorm. And I lived in a high-rise building, so I couldn't see who was doing it, but it sounded like this very large and very threatening group of guys. And I couldn't quite make out what they were saying, but it sounded something like, Vargas! And I didn't know what that meant, so I just kind of kept going about my day. And then they started calling and waking me up in the middle of the night, and they would scream, Vargas! It sounded like they were like above me and below me on the 18th and 20th floor windows, and they would scream it out into the darkness at night. And then they started leaving me messages on my answering machine with some voice modulator. It was like, Vargas, Vargas, Vargas! 
And I was starting to actually get a little nervous. But, and then it just kept getting worse. Like they would whisper behind me in class. They'd be like, Vargas. And they'd yell at me in the dining hall. And it somehow word spread and guys in the dorm next to mine started doing it too. And it was like everywhere I went, I heard this and I didn't know what Vargas meant. So one day I'm at block party and it's like the entire campus has descended on fraternity row. It's like 16, 20,000 students are there. And I'm hanging out and I'm singing to the band and I'm drinking like a Peach Bartles and James wine cooler. I'm having a good time. And then out of nowhere, 20 of these guys come up and surround me. And they're chanting, Vargas, Vargas, Vargas. And they're closing in on me. And the closer and closer they get to me, the farther away I see my friends walking. And my heart is racing. And finally, like the big ringleader of the group is standing like right in front of me. And he kind of looks like a brawny Evander Holyfield. And he was this big football player on campus. And I finally, I guess it was like liquid courage from my wine cooler. And I was like, what does Vargas mean? And he got so close to my face, I could smell the cheap beer on his breath. And he goes, Fast Times of Ridgemont High, you look like Mr. Vargas. And he starts laughing, and then they start laughing. And it's like building, and it's maniacal, and they're so close to me at this point. And I go, who is that? Now, if you guys don't know, Mr. Vargas uh, was the science teacher in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He was played by this character actor named Vincent Schiavelli who was also in this uh, movie Ghost, where he played this crazy guy in, on this train. We had this like wild, crazy hair, and he was on the subway, and he's like, off my train! Get off my train! That's who they thought I looked like. <laughs> and it wasn't just that that man is highly unattractive. It was that it was a man. And I was so crushed. I was so embarrassed and ashamed by that. But I didn't let on to my friends that that was how I felt. I just kept going as though everything was fine. But deep down, I was afraid to be home. I was afraid to be out. I was afraid to be anywhere. But I just kept going about my business. And a few weeks later, I'm on my way to class. And I get on the elevator. I'm by myself. And it stops on the 18th floor. The doors open. And Chris is standing there with his friends. And his face lights up, and he smiles at me, and he gets on, and I don't say anything, and they don't say anything. I just stand there, and I stay fixated on the numbers. But I can feel their bulky winter coats rubbing up against me. And then we stop on 12, and more of them get on. And they're all smiling and smirking. Nobody's saying anything, but out of the corner of my eye, I see Chris go, And as he does that, his breath blows my curls across my face. But I just stay there, and I keep watching those numbers. And then we stop on five, and more of them get on. And at this point, the elevator is packed. Nobody can move. My heart is pounding out of my chest. And I am freaking out, because I don't know what to do, because I'm afraid of what they're going to do. And I finally stick my hand through their bodies, and I hit the button for the third floor. And as soon as the elevator's doors open, I race through them, and I cross over, and I hear them scream, Vargas, Vargas, Vargas! And I run through the common area, and I hide inside the stairwell. 
And after that, I was like, I have to tell somebody. So I go and I tell the residence director. As soon as I went into her office, I was like, Susan, this is you know what's been going on. And she's like, ugh. She goes, Robin, I get complaints about these guys every single day. They're either beating people up or breaking into cars. You should consider yourself lucky. And I was like, uh, that's not really the word that came to mind. But then I thought, well, maybe she's right. Like, maybe, relatively speaking, I am lucky. And maybe I should have told somebody sooner. Maybe I should have told my parents. And, you know, why didn't I do anything about this sooner? I was starting to get really angry with myself. And so I was telling my friend Lisa about it. She's from Long Island. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? You're being harassed. You need to talk to somebody. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll do it. All right. (laughs) You got it. So... Uh, finally, I decided to go to the judicial board, which was so scary for me, but I went and I told them what was happening, and luckily, they took it seriously. They issued what they thought was a very appropriate punishment. They had them write letters of apology. <laughs> and you can imagine like, what these letters were. It's like, Dear Robin, sorry I called you Vargas. <laughs> Have a great summer. And at this point, actually, it had grown to like 60 guys who were involved in this, and uh, the judicial board just punished five of them. But I was like, I don't care. I'm just, I just want this to be behind me because I'm here to be in the Newhouse School. So a couple weeks later, I am getting all packed up to go home. Mindy's not in the room. I've got my door cracked open. I'm like rolling up my Howard Jones poster. I'm singing to Erasure. I'm having a good time. And I look up, and standing in the doorway is Chris. And I noticed two things about him immediately. One, he's alone. And two, he's completely like hunched over and he's staring at the floor. And I go, hi, Chris. And he reaches his hand out and he's got this um, slip of paper in it and he says, uh, 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 they told me I had to give you this. I said, I know, come on in. And the reason I wasn't nervous was because, A, because he was alone, but B, I'd been taking classes in nonviolent action and social change all year. <laughs> and I, I was like totally into like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and I was like, this is like the perfect time to put this into practice, like love thy enemy, this is gonna be amazing. So I have him sit down on my twin bed, my little pink comforter, he has a big football player, and I wheel my desk chair over to him, and I'm like three feet from his face because I want him to feel as scared of me as I've been of him. And I reach out my hand, I said, hi, I'm Robin. And he doesn't look up, but he shakes my hand back and he goes, I'm Chris. I said, I know who you are. I said, you and your friends have made my life a living hell. I can't go anywhere without hearing this name. I just tried out to be the orange mascot and you guys screamed at me the entire walk to the carrier dome and the entire time back. And I don't understand, we just met, right? And he's still not looking at me, but he's like, he's clearly very nervous. And I said, Chris, I just wanna know one thing, why? And he doesn't say anything. So I wheel my chair a little closer. I said, I just wanna know why. And he doesn't say anything. So I let him go. Now. I wish I could tell you when I went back uh, sophomore year that everything changed and I got a clean slate. Uh, But the truth is that even though the yelling subsided, the stares and whispers and laughter continued. 
But I sucked it up because I was determined to not let them stop me from getting into the new house program, and I got in. But it didn't matter because the damage was done. For the next three years, I did everything I could to avoid them. It was like I was constantly looking over my shoulder. So I got, I took 21 credits like each semester. I would get up really early in the morning and I would come home very late at night to avoid them. I got all involved in all kinds of activities where I knew they couldn't find me, like student government and dance troupe. I even joined the chapel choir and I'm not even Christian. But the one thing that I wanted to do and the whole reason I was there was I wanted to join the campus TV and radio station, but I didn't do it because I was so afraid they were gonna, it was gonna draw more attention to myself. And by the end of my senior year, I realized that I had been living in this like self-imposed witness protection program. And I graduated and I got my degree from the Newhouse School and I was very, very happy. And at graduation, they had me sing the national anthem and the alma mater. And after that was done, I sang a funny song that I had written for the students. And I sang that song by myself, a cappella, in the Carrier Dome. And as I stood on this podium, I was so overwhelmed by this eruption of laughter from more than like 30,000 people who were laughing with me. And as I took that in, I looked down at those bullies. And for the first time, I felt so confident because I knew I was no longer afraid of them. But more than anything, I was no longer afraid to be myself. Thank you. This one's for the lonely, the ones that seek and find Only to be let down time after time This one's for the torn down, the experts at the fall Come on friends, get up now, you're not alone at all Oh, 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 oh.
This is Risk. This is Greg Laswell behind me now. A song brought to my attention by Risk Music intern Joseph Bretzfelder. If you'd like to be a Risk Music intern, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. We just heard from Robin Gelfenbein. She has a very popular storytelling show of her own in New York called Yum's the Word. And you can find her at robingelfenbein.com. And, of course, you can find the links to the websites for the storytellers and the musicians on the listen pages at risk-show.com. Our final story today comes from a truly unique and wonderful new voice in the comedy world. I think he is well on his way to tremendous success. Trevor Noah was born a mixed-race kid in South Africa when apartheid was still in effect. He has dozens of amazing stories just about that, and I assumed he was going to be sharing one of those with us, but the story he did end up telling at the Risk Live show in New York City was a total surprise. But listen, there is so much more great stuff to hear from Trevor, and he has a special on Showtime this summer. It's called Trevor Noah, African American... It first airs on Showtime on July 6th at midnight and various other times throughout the month. But here he is now at the Risk Live show in New York City. This is Trevor Noah of the story we call The Best Looking Person in the Family. Good evening, uh, and to the people at home, good evening to you. This is cool, because you're here, but they're also there. I've never done this before. I feel like I'm talking to you, but more importantly, I'm talking to the person who's listening to this now on their iPod. One of those really old ones with the scrolly wheel thing. <laughs> I can't believe you still have one of those. And I'm from Africa. <laughs> I, uh, I, I grew up in a single-parent household. Uh, this was not because my, my father was unavailable or didn't want to live with us. Um, he couldn't live with us because we grew up in South Africa during apartheid. Or I grew up during that time. My parents were already grown up when they were parents. Because this is generally what parents do. Uh, not always, but most of the time. And so because of this, we couldn't live together. But I feel like even if we could live together, we wouldn't have. My, my mother never wanted a man to own her child. It was a very strange uh, deal she had with my father. She said to him, I want a child. And he said, I don't want to be a dad. She said, no, I didn't say I want you to be a father. I said, I want a child. And so he agreed to make her pregnant, uh, which I think was a good time. And just because I know what this consists of. And, and so I was born to my mother. And she named me Trevor Cliff Noah. The only reason I got the second name Cliff was because she wanted me to have the second initial C. Because she wanted my, my initials to stand for tender care. Um, which is just a horrible reason to give somebody the name Cliff. <laughs> you can just say that my name is tender care and we will know in the family but she chose to destroy me with that name 
And, uh, and my mom and I lived together. This, this was our thing. We were like a team, you know, a fantastic team that went through life together, living in crazy places. We moved a lot. Um, in the beginning, I was her little fat child. She treated me very well. Every Tuesday, we would go and have pizza. This was like a special treat where she would buy me a pizza and then she would watch me eat it. She wasn't allowed to join me because this was my pizza. And she would do anything for me because I was her only child. And I always reminded her of this. Even as a little child, I would look at her and I'd say, I could die, you know. And then she would let me eat my food alone, which was really cool. And assholeish when you think in hindsight. But at the time as a child, I felt like this was appropriate. Uh, and so we lived together and we, we grew up in the strangest areas. Because my mom lived a very independent life, she didn't rely on her family, we lived together in a place called Eden Park, which was a horrible area on, on the very far outskirts of the outskirts of the city. And, and so we, we used to walk to the main road and then hitchhike into town. That was the only way we could get in. Uh, we had no car at the time, so we, we would live there and then every morning at 6 a.m. we would walk for about an hour and then we would hitchhike from 7 a.m. And, uh, and then that's how we'd get around. Um, sometimes my mom would tell me to hide and then wait for the car to stop for her and then I would run out because people were more likely to stop for a woman and not a woman and a fat child. So we used to do this all the time. And then one day we got a car, which was great, we got a car. So we lived in this, we had a little beetle that we had together and life was really good. Until one day, my mom fell in love with another man, uh, a very charming man. He didn't have front teeth, but his charm uh, circumvented this, this fact. <laughs> he, he actually had a great smile, even though he didn't have those teeth. And he was a very charming guy, sweet guy, and he was cool and he was hip. He was the friendliest guy ever and he was a mechanic, he used to fix our car. And he was just like the coolest guy ever. And one thing led to another. One day we were having dinner with him. The next day we were just hanging out as, as friends. And I got to know him and he was my buddy and he was cool. And then one day he slept over at the house, which I didn't understand, I was a kid. I was just like, yeah, he slept over. Uh, I didn't think that he was doing things with my mom, um, which is just horrible even now to think of. <laughs> and, and so he stayed. And then one day my mom said to me, at a prayer group meeting that we always used to go to every Tuesday. She said, Trevor, I'm thinking of marrying this man. And I went, who, Jesus? Because that's who we'd been talking about. <laughs> it's very important to, to build up something before you tell. And she said, no, no, I'm thinking of marrying Abby. And I was like, what? Why would you marry him? He's just a cool guy that sleeps over. This makes no sense. Plus, I've already got a dad. She said, no, no, not to be your dad, to be my husband. And I said, that makes no sense. You get husbands so that they can be dads. And uh, she didn't agree, and so they got married. And I, I never liked him. I never liked him. Uh, I didn't. And I don't think he liked me. I never called him dad. I refused. I called him by his first name, which was Abel. And I made sure I enunciated it when I saw him. I said, hello, Abel. And he would say, hello, Trevor. And we would eye each other. Almost like a young lion cub, eyes the old one, like, one day when I'm strong enough, I will kill you. <laughs> and I always dreamt of that day. And, uh, and we lived together for a while, things were good. And then one day, I'll never forget this. We were at home, and uh, Abel, who was very charming in the beginning, started to become increasingly drunk as the relationship grew, become more and more drunk. And then one day, 
he, uh, he got to the house. It was at 1 a.m. or somewhere there. And this was a tiny little house we lived in together on the outskirts of the outskirts. And he came back. He was very drunk, and he decided to cook himself some food. Um, during the course of this meal, he fell asleep, which I don't think was in the recipe. And the food burnt on the stove. My mom woke up because she smelled that, that smell. You know the smell, you know, when something is burning. And she thought the house was burning down. She ran into the kitchen and she found the food and then she started to shout at him. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, this is the problem with you. This is the thing. You do the thing. You get drunk. You're always drunk now. Why are you always drunk? Why are you always drunk? And he was drunk, like, ah, I'm drunk. And she said, why are you always drunk? Why do you do this? What's wrong with you? And I thought, oh, why can't we just sleep? Let's just sleep. Let's just sleep. And then... I'll never forget, I was sleepily watching this fight and uh, out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, my mom was shouting saying, how could you do this? Why are you doing this? Drunk, you're drunk. Why do you always do this? You're doing this. And then he slapped her. And you know, the weird thing about seeing your parent get hit is you just don't see it coming because parents are not, are not meant to receive beatings. This is their job to administer beatings. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was the recipient of many a beating in my time. Um, I, this was very normal. I know in America children aren't supposed to be beaten, which I think is a waste of children. But in Africa this was and still is very normal. You, you hit your child, this is most of the fun of having children. And, uh, and so I was beaten. I think kids are made for it. We, we are meant to be beaten. We, we understand beatings. But I, I'll never forget, my mom got hit by, by this man and she fell to the ground. And I'd, I'd never seen my mom in this position before, and she was there, and she, and she looked at him, and this was the first time this had ever happened, and she looked at him and she said, what are you doing? And he said, something drunk, drunk, something drunk, shut up woman, drunk, drunk. And uh, she got up and she said, what are you doing? How dare you, how can you do that, what are you doing? And he said, shut up. And she said, I won't shut up, I won't shut up. And she said, shut up, and I won't shut up, I won't shut up. And then he hit her again. And then she just carried on talking from the floor. And in my head, I was going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you know how this works? Because I was an expert at receiving beatings. I knew the technique was to question initially and then cry and then be silent. This generally limited the duration of the beating you would receive. Uh, but she just carried on. She just carried on. And, and, and uh, we, we made our way out and we ran. And I'll, I'll never forget that day. We ran to the police station and we got there. And uh, my mom said, I would like to lay a charge against this man who has hit me. And the policeman said, well, did you do something? And my mom said, what do you mean? She said, well, did you do something to make him hit you? And uh, my mom said, no, no, I, I, I didn't. And we stood there. I remember, I remember standing there going, what, what did she do? Did she do? Can you do something to make someone hit you? I, I didn't know, because this was the police, and the police know everything. You know? So I stood there, and I, I didn't know. And uh, I don't remember what happened for the rest of the night because I fell asleep on the police bench next to a man in handcuffs who uh, cradled me in his lap as I fell asleep. Um, I remember the warm handcuffs against my face. Um, they actually aren't that bad when they're warm. They're, when they're cold, it's like, ah, oh, handcuffs. But when they're warm, it's just like excessive jewelry type thing, you know? And I fell asleep. Um, my mother didn't leave him. And we, we lived together for many years. He didn't, didn't hit her again until one day, a few years ago, uh, my mom was coming back from church. And I was in my new place. I had just gotten a place. And I got a phone call from my brother, my younger brother, in the morning. And he said, Trevor, where are you? What are you? Are you busy? And I said, yeah, sort of. What happened? And he said, mom's been shot. And I said, I'm sorry, what? 
And he said, mom's being shot, so are you busy? I said, even if I was, this, is, this sort of clears out my schedule. And he said, well, she's been shot. And it's so funny, I didn't ask by whom. I knew immediately who she had been shot by. It was a strange thing. I always hated the man. He had an evil about him. And so I said, okay, where was this? And my brother said, at the house, at the house. But we're at the hospital now. And so I got in the car and I drove to the hospital. I get to the hospital and my brother's outside holding back tears. And he's, he's 10 years younger than me. But he was, he was much stronger than I was. I was crying. I was bawling like a little child, just crying. What has she done? Why didn't she leave him? I told him to leave him. And I ran in and the people were there at the hospital. And they, and they ask you all the important questions about her, you know, like, uh, like does she have uh, insurance? Does she have medical insurance? And I go, don't you want to know her blood type? They said, no, we need to know her insurance type. And, um, and they wouldn't help her until, until we proved we had insurance, which we didn't. So I said, use my credit card and just pay for whatever. And they said, it might be very expensive. I said, no, no, it doesn't matter. Money's no cost. This is, this is money's, no, money's no, no object. This is my mother. Just, just take the money. And they said, but we need to do x-rays. It could cost a thousand. I said, take the thousand. And they said, well, we need to do blood tests and we might do surgery. It might cost 10,000. I said, take the 10,000. They said, it might be a lot of money if she has to go in ICU. I said, just do it. They said, but it could cost a fortune. I said, well, how much? How much? Because I mean, we don't want it to be too much because I mean, like I still want my money and she's cool and everything, but she's lived a great life, I feel. And I think she would understand. She wouldn't want to be, for me to be broke and she didn't like survive in surgery. Like I think she wouldn't want that. So tell me when it gets to like more than like, like 100,000 and then we'll, then we'll reevaluate this relationship and everything around us. And, uh, and then they said, no, it'll only cost a few thousand. I said, well, then the money's no object. Take the thousands. Take the thousands and save my mother. Take it all, but not all. Just take what I said before, but just, just imagine it's all. And so then my mom was there and she was bleeding and I was crying and my brother was there holding me like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and he told me the story. Apparently this man came to the house while my mom was there coming back from church. Um, very ironically, I feel, because you just come from church. Church is the place where you, you almost go and re-up your ante of good things. You know, you go there and you go, hey, give me more good things for one more week, please. And then she came back and then now bad thing immediately. And I was just like, ah, you let us down, Jesus. That was a bit of a slip up. You should have protected her at least until Monday. I mean, on the Sunday, that's just, that's just major letdown in terms of like God. Um, I was very disappointed by that. And I let him know on many occasions uh, as I re-upped my auntie. But anyway, I, I go off the topic. And, um, and so, so my brother told me the story. He came to the house and he said, I've had enough of this. I've heard you want to leave me. You will not leave me. And then he pulled out a gun and then he fired, he fired the shots at her. And, um, and but miraculously, four of the bullets refused to fire. They just fell out of the front of the gun and fell onto the floor, just totally not discharged, which was very weird. I think that was Jesus. Like he, he was like four bullets, then everything else. He was like, look, man, I, I, I can't work miracles. I mean, I can, but this is like <laughs> bullets and wine are very different. Um, so he stopped four bullets. So only one entered my mom's head went into the back of her head and then out the front by her nose so it ripped her nose to shreds and so she was in the hospital bleeding from her face and I was there panicking what are you going to do with it and my mom was there gasping for good with blood going oh don't worry don't worry I was like I'm worried I'm worried and I was crying she's the one bleeding but I'm crying like oh I'm in so much pain I'm in so much pain and she's like it's okay it's okay and I'm like it's not okay you're bleeding out your face lady this is not okay and it reminded me of the first time I saw my mom's tampons as a little child because that was the first time I saw my mom bleed and I remember going this is you're not okay you're gonna die and she said no this is what happens and I, I came over there but then like this was like no this is not what happens because you're bleeding out your face now and it looks like it'll last more than seven days so this is a problem and we sat there and, and we cried together my brother and I and um, and then my mom my mom miraculously survived the bullet went through her uh, missing everything her spine her her nerves everything came out the front 
and it just ripped her, her nose to shreds. And uh, I remember standing in the, the recovery room with her when we just, and you know, she regained consciousness and the doctor came and he said, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. You have survived. The bullets did no damage just to your face and we can have plastic surgery if you want. And my mom said, no, no surgery. I'll keep it the way it is as a reminder of what has happened to me. And I remember looking at her and I went, wow, what a hero. What a hero. Sort of ugly hero because the nose is weird, but still a hero and she's my mom, so I don't care. And, uh, and I'll never forget, just like I guess my, my inspiration, she looked at me and, uh, and my mom and I look very alike. Uh, just she's like the darker version of me because she's black. Um, and she looked at me and uh, this was the aftermath. Everyone had just been quiet for a long time and she looked and she said, you know what this means now, right? And I said, no, what does it mean? And she said, well now, you're undisputedly the best looking person in the family. <laughs> and she said, there's a bright side to everything. And there was, and she's cool now. And uh, the man who shot her is in jail. And uh, thanks to Jesus, there were no more than one bullet. And this is my story. Thank you very much. That's all for this week, folks. Don't forget that Risk is going to be in Norfolk, Virginia on July 19th and 20th. If you are from anywhere near there and you might like to tell a story at the show, write to me. Pitch your story to me at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. On the 25th of July, we'll be in New York with Dan Kennedy and in L.A. with Jay Moore. And on the 29th of August, we're coming to Austin, Texas. So, hey, Austin, you send me your pitches as well if you'd like to be a part of our August show there at kevinatrisk-show.com. If you haven't started following us on Twitter and Facebook yet, please follow us and join the conversation. We are at Risk Show, both places. And on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. If you haven't checked out the educational opportunities that we provide through our school at thestorystudio.org, check that out. We do one-on-one coaching over Skype. 
we do a video lecture series that you can take in your time online called Storytelling for Business. And of course, we do group workshops here in New York City. Don't forget that Risk is listener supported. We are a member of the Maximum Fun Network. If you go to MaximumFun.org slash donate, you can help to keep Risk running. We couldn't keep this going without your help. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and help us out. Other than that, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Somewhere it's always Was it a scary situation to you? Scariest seven dicks in a six dick salsa.